0: Hello, and welcome to the Talking Techniques podcast. Brought to you by Biotechniques, this show brings you the latest from the frontiers of the life sciences, straight from the people exploring them. I'm your host, Biotechniques digital editor, Tristan Free, and in part one of this two-part episode, I'll be delving into the world of whole genome sequencing in rare disease research. To do this, I'll be speaking with four guests from academia, the clinic and industry, to get the full story from basic research to clinical implementation. Coming up, here's some real-life stories of how whole-genome sequencing has helped patients and their families.
1: Uh, And this family, uh, which was medically very savvy, in fact one of the parents was a physician, when they heard this result, uh, the first thing they did was bake a cake for their child with with the word TTN on it. So they had a big celebration because for them all of a sudden they had a community.
0: We take a look at the diagnostic odyssey experienced by some rare disease patients
2: and they continue to bounce around in the medical space trying to identify what that underlying cause is. It can go on for uh, years.
0: And we find out how whole genome sequencing is beginning to address this odyssey and change rare disease research for the better.
3: So, I mean, this week we've diagnosed two kids in less than 14 hours from the time the kid landed in the intensive care unit to having an answer for the families. That was unthinkable even five years ago.
0: So, joining me today is Alan Beggs, Director of the Manton Centre for Orphan Disease Research at Boston Children's Hospital, Christine Stanley, Chief Director of Clinical Genomics at Variantics; David Dimmock, Senior Medical Director of the Rady Children's Institute for Genomic Medicine, and finally, Take Ogawa, Vice President of Sales and Marketing at Somagen, the whole genome, exome and gene sequencing solutions company, who I would also like to thank for bringing this fascinating group of people together. We'll uh, we'll start with you, Christine. So firstly, it's great to have you on the podcast.
2: Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here.
0: Um, So when I was looking into rare diseases for this episode and doing a bit of research, it became pretty clear quite quickly that diagnosis is obviously a very big issue in this field. Um, And the phrase diagnostic odyssey came up. Can you explain this term to me?
2: Yeah, so we use the term diagnostic odyssey when we're talking about um, a patient's a uh, quest to identify the cause of their clinical symptoms. So the beginning of it would be when they first um, have some indication that something's not right. They're experiencing some clinical symptoms that are not explained uh, very easily. And they start their first sort of visit to the clinician to try to t- understand what the underlying cause is. And then that turns into an odyssey is when it's not easily identifiable. And there's referral from clinician to clinician and oftentimes associated with different um, types of testing and uh, return of results, and uh, which will continue to come back either inconclusive or negative. And they continue to bounce around in the medical space trying to identify what that underlying cause is until eventually they get their diagnosis. So that can be you know a short period of time or it can go on for uh, years.
0: Uh, And is this usually mainly based in sort of genetic um, disorders and diseases?
2: Yeah, no, it can be probably in any area. Um, In genetics, uh, there was the rule of thumb for like children looking for a diagnosis. If they've seen as many clinicians as they are years or months in age, then it starts to look like it might be a genetic diagnosis um, that we're looking for. Um, It tends to be very uh, challenging in the field of genetics because. Um, You know, genetic training is a very specialized space, and the signs and symptoms of genetic disorders um, are usually recognized in a constellation with one another, and so oftentimes you need a a geneticist, or at least historically you needed a geneticist to actually look at the patient, and um, access to geneticists have been very challenging, uh, especially if you live in rural areas and you don't have access to, like, main hospitals that have genetics departments and genetic counselors. Um, it is it is definitely a hallmark of the genetic space, but I wouldn't say that it's isolated to the genetic space. In terms of the
0: the factors that contribute to this rare disease diagnostic odyssey, what, what do you think are the key problems that kind of lead to this situation?
2: Um, yeah, it, I think it's some of the um, signs that one looks for for genetics can not be part of a standard sort of medical workup. So you know, you're looking at syndromic disorders, you're looking at specific signs and facial um, differences in signs in individuals. Um, I think that uh, sometimes depending on what's actually going on with the patient, they may have um, a genetic cause of disease that is very complicated and hard to diagnose, like if they have an underlying mitochondrial disorder, um, which can hit a lot of different organ systems and have a really confusing clinical phenotype, and there can be inter and intrafamil variation that makes it um, more difficult. You know, a lot of times there's no resources to collect really detailed and thorough clinical family pedigrees to try to understand if there's something genetic going on in the family. Uh, We've seen cases where there've been two, actual two genetic diseases going on at the same time. The constellation of symptoms don't really point to one particular disease because it's not one disease. That overlap in clinical symptoms may make it impossible to delineate. So um, no matter how educated and well-versed someone might be, it may be just impossible to make the diagnosis on a clinical level.
0: Okay, um, so Alan, I'm going to bring you in here. Part of your lab's work is um, sort of focused on the discovery of rare diseases, so um, that initial discovery of of a rare disease and where it's come from. Can you tell us a bit about that work?
1: Yeah, sure, Tristan. Um, It's something that's been ongoing for a number of years, and recent technical advances have made the discovery of the causes for rare diseases easier when they have a genetic basis. As Christine said, a lot of rare diseases, roughly around 80% maybe, are thought to have a genetic basis. Um, But when it's a one-off, it can be very difficult to identify. So uh, you know, in the past, we used to have to sequence DNA manually and could only look at a small part. Now we have um, next-generation sequencing methods, maybe we'll get into a little bit later, that allow us to look at a much bigger portion of our genome all at once. Uh, But uh, it requires... um, a really careful evaluation of the clinical picture and uh, because so many of these things are being seen for the first time or uh, one of the important things is to aggregate cases and so centers uh, like the manton center for orphan disease research here or uh, rady children's where dr dimick works um, bring together larger numbers of patients and and that's helpful even then with a cohort of a few thousand individuals we may still only have one or two cases of the same thing. And so now there are newer methods uh, that kind of aggregate and share information in ways that protects patient privacy, uh, but also allows for investigators to share enough information to try to identify more than one case. So really, I think because of the rarity, communication among and between and, and by investigators, both in an academic setting, in a clinical diagnostic setting and in, in among industry, is really critical. And, that, and that's one of the things that has sped up the development and identification recently.
0: And so that, as you put it, the, the aggregating patients and, and bringing them together, is, is that is that important just to give you a, a larger um, data set, essentially, to, for you to begin to spot patterns um, in terms of these, these rare diseases?
1: Yeah, essentially, uh, putting together a group of individuals who have similar clinical findings, you know, who've gone through that diagnostic odyssey, um, and you've identified certain features in common among them. Um, there's a, a well-known example of a, a father, who was, was actually a computer scientist, um, who um, had a child uh, who had some developmental disability, and among other things, he didn't cry tears. He had what we call a lacrima. This uh, man put the symptoms and findings on the internet, and somebody else responded with a, said that their child had similar presentation. And through that, they actually identified a group of individuals who all had the same thing, eventually were able to study and find that they all had in common mutations or, or pathogenic variants in the same gene, and then defined a new syndrome in that way
0: fascinating so i guess that that sort of power com- of communication is really shining through there yeah so uh, in addition to that um sort of increase in the uh, the awareness of of bringing patients together and the value that you get from those individual stories um what are some of the techniques that you've found have really helped in your work um you mentioned that next generation sequencing earlier um yeah so what what kind of techniques have have really brought things forward recently
1: so you could broadly break it down into two areas one would be phenotyping essentially you know um Recording, identifying, and recording what the clinical presentation is like, what are the symptoms, um, what's wrong with the patient. And then the other, obviously, is genotyping. And so, te- on a technical level, genotyping has really exploded. Uh, when I started my career, we were sequencing 150 bases at a stretch over several days using radioactivity and could maybe do it in 30 samples at one time. Now, through um, next-generation sequencing, we can do a whole exome or a whole genome, and Rady Children's Hospital, for example, they're able to do a whole genome analysis in about a day, so sequencing most of the 3 billion bases that make up our entire genome. The difficulty there, of course, is identifying the signal from among the, the noise, if you want to call it, of normal variation amongst all of us, and so we all have hundreds of thousands of variations in our sequence relative to each other. And if you've got a genetic condition, chances are only one of those is responsible for that. So that, that's the new kind of needle in the haystack. It's an information needle that we need to try to search out. Um, and there are much better um, approaches to doing that now. Christine's company's worked in this area quite a bit. The Rady Group and us and other, many others have been developing approaches to do that. On the phenotyping side, When you're looking at a one-off, obviously a human being can sit down and read the medical record and examine the patient and look at all the information. But when you're working on a larger scale, now it becomes necessary to try and address what's in the EHR, electronic health record, of large groups of patients. And so increasingly natural language processing is starting to be uh, developed and and, and utilized in, in smart ways to try to pull out relevant findings, and then that, of course, can be those findings can be encoded and in, uh, into ontologies such as the human phenotype ontology HPO or SNOMED terms, ICD-10 codes are another example of that. And so increasingly, there are computer algorithms being developed to crunch together um, these codes, these phenotypic codes, together with the genetic variants and what's known in the literature about our various genes to try to find matches.
0: And David, in your more sort of clinical focused work, which techniques have you sort of observed to have made the biggest impacts in your field of rare of disease research?
3: I think there is a, is a combination of things that have really come together to, to, to change the way that we practice medicine. Um, so as, as Christine alluded to, really getting a phenotype is very difficult, particularly in a newborn where essentially the newborn's in the ICU and they're sick and that's the only phenotype you have is they're sick and they're in the ICU. You know the ability to get information really is quite is quite challenging, even using things like um, facial recognition software is great in an older kid, but when you've got a child who's got a tube in their nose, a tube in their mouth, and tape all over their face, it's really hard to to even look at the face to to, to figure out what what the child looks like. And so really there's there's been this move towards I would say a genome first diagnostic approach, and that really has only been become possible over the last five to ten years as a result of improvements in sequencing and the speed um so if i go back to 15 years ago when i sort of started trying to figure out how we could do this sequencing stuff for patients we were so so proud of ourselves because we managed to sequence three genes at once on kits and it was such a huge deal but it's kind of laughable now by what we can do you know fundamentally icu physicians are used to well can you get me an answer in an hour or will it take you three or four hours Um, of course you know the human genome project took like 15 years that's that's not really very tractable for critically ill patients and in fact for families waiting when there's something wrong with their kid even as an outpatient where the kid is stable waiting months for a diagnosis frankly is just awful Um, so the speed with which we can do things um, you know the accuracy of calling genomes has not changed much in the last decade but the ability to call a genome much faster so I mean this week we've diagnosed two kids in less than 14 hours from the time the kid landed in the intensive care unit to having an answer for the families that was unthinkable even five years ago Um, you know five years ago we were so proud of ourselves because we've managed to turn around a genome trio in 96 hours um, for a kid and that saved the kid's life so um, I, I think just to get concrete here many of the disorders we deal with in neonates if you wait a week to figure out what the kid has the brain damage is permanent or the kid's dead and so really having a diagnosis in a few hours is a fundamental game changer because we could stop talking about this long journey with with changing fortunes that we have that is known as the diagnostic odyssey and actually start to talk about how we can get therapy in children in 24 48 72 hours Um, and so I, i think we've actually really moved a lot from the question of can we diagnose kids to how quickly we can get treatment. Now, I, I will say we're still missing diagnoses, probably a quarter to a half of the kids um, that we know have a genetic disease, we're still not finding an answer. And this is where basic science, gene hunting, aggregation really comes together. Christine, in in your time managing sort of clinical laboratories
0: um, of this nature, what have your observations of the the impact of, um, of whole genome sequencing been?
2: Yeah, I mean, definitely echoing what Alan and David said with um, <clears throat> where we've been, you know, where how far we've come. So I started off in diagnostic testing at a laboratory who, who did a lot of multi-platform testing. So looking for very specific targeted tests that may be using qPCR, MLPA, Sanger sequencing, what would happen is the clinician would order a test, and you know you get over all the complications of will insurance pay for it, how much will they pay, how much does the patient have residual, all that complication of just getting the order in. And then you get to the test, and then you run it on this platform that's really just shining a light in this one little spot. Not only just that, is that you can get um, variant types that are on different method platforms. So you maybe you did an MLPA, and you have a single exon deletion. And then maybe you did a Sanger test and you have a single um, nucleotide variant that's pathogenic. Um, we were leaving it to the clinician to receive those results and possibly a whole bunch of other test results and say, oh, look, there's half the result here and half the result on this other test. And that's actually positive for recessive disorder. You can have, you know, one type of variant on one allele and another type of variant on another allele. So the thing about whole genome sequencing is that we now have the capability of extrapolating information from the genome that allows us to um, unify what is fragmented multi-platform type of testing into a single platform and a single report. And, and that is game-changing. The backbone of whole genome sequencing is what's supporting the identification of the multiple variant types. The point is that like with whole genome, the method platform in the date, the uh, software analysis, the software analytics that lays on top of that data platform allows for the extrapolation of data. So we're now identifying single exon or partial exon deletions. Um, We've seen cases where they had exomes done and they didn't identify either variant in the causative gene. And one was a partial exon deletion and one was a like minus 21 in the intron pathogenic variant. It's not only the comprehensive nature of whole genome sequencing that provides us you know, answers. It's also that that software that you have to develop to be able to identify these variant types. Another thing that we're seeing, you know, at Variantix is a lot of diagnoses for Friedrich Ataxia. So we're seeing patients that have gone, um, you know, 50 or 60 years. Honestly, we had a recent diagnosis in a woman who is in her 60s with very late onset Friedrich Ataxia, where the combination of variants have been a uh, single exon deletion and a repeat expansion on the other alleles
0: so it's kind of the that ability of whole genome sequencing to catch things that would be with previous um sort of diagnostic tests would be outside of their their range of um or their the specific sequence they would scan and then also yep. compiling essentially doing all the work that all of these separate different tests that you'd be going off to different specialists to, to receive um into yep. one into one region
2: patients can be lost for recontact so you know they may change clinicians and by the time these other results get in and they are seeing somebody else you're you're now leaving it to another person and the the diagnostic lab should really be focused on making it much easier for clinicians to get that answer without having to go through all those hurdles and without having to make those connections
0: and and david you you mentioned that so even with this technology there are still diagnoses that go um go missing um what are the sort of the areas of um, your diagnostic work that you think desperately need a new technique or new method, or or even just a new understanding um, or improvement of the software to to help you make those other diagnoses.
3: Yeah, I mean, I think one of the things that Christine alluded to is the ability to get trinucleotide repeats. Um, you know, for us, when we look at a floppy kid, um, which has been the, sort of the focus of Anne's research for decades now, right, Alan, um, is, is, is just the fact that the, the, there's what we call the big three. So myotonic dystrophy, Duchenne muscular dystrophy is, is much less common in, in newborns, um, Prader-Willi syndrome, um, and then SMA. So, so those three are the big three that account for approximately a third to a half of the kids that are born that are floppy. Getting imprinted genetic defects on a genome frankly, was thought to be impossible a decade ago, and there are tricks now that you can use to do that. We can get the trinucleotide repeats to get myotonic dystrophy, and we can see in this gene that looks almost exactly the same as the pseudogene, the SMN2, we can actually see the most common deletion that accounts for about 90% of cases of that disorder. And we can look at the 150-ish other common causes of muscle floppiness and the approximately 1,000 other disorders that can lead to brain or nerve problems that can lead to a floppy child all at once with a single test without walking in and having to figure out what the child has before we send the right test so one of the key areas going forward is is how we do that I think um, as Christine alluded to you know we thought we knew what myotonic dystrophy looked like in the newborns because every kid that we diagnosed with it looked the same way because those were the only kids we sent the test on we're now realizing that actually the clinical spectrum of this disorder is very different than we thought it was, um, and actually the kids can present very differently than what the textbook says, because the textbook was based on this what we call a confirmation bias loop, where every kid that we saw that we diagnosed all looked the same because the only kids we sent the test on that were positive looked the same way, um, and so I think you know trinucleotide repeats is an example of the technology going forwards and allowing us to to recognize a group of disorders um, that we were missing before. But beyond that, the really big technological gap right now is going from you've made a diagnosis of a disorder that nobody in the hospital's ever seen before, to making sure that kid actually gets on the right therapy when there is an approved therapy, or at least there's discussions about dietary changes that will improve outcomes. So the case that we were out yesterday, um, it took us, I would say, probably longer to figure out what the right treatments were. Then it took us to sequence the genome and make the diagnosis. And so one of the key technological errors right now is getting from that point to having a diagnosis to having the most up-to-date literature um, available so a physician actually knows what to do without having to spend six hours reading papers. Yeah so um, Alan would you like to to comment on any of that?
1: Yeah so I mean uh, so David talked about you know like for example one of the technical reasons why we may be missing some of these diagnoses and that might be that short read sequencing isn't as good at picking up trinucleotide repeat expansions. And so, you know, when you ask the general question, why are we not diagnosing patients? um, I'd say there's really two categories, and that exemplifies one of the most important ones, which is our technical limitation. So another big class of mutations we don't identify very well with typical diagnostic tests today are larger structural variations. And so, supplementing short read sequencing, for example, with long read sequencing, maybe using optical mapping techniques and so on. So so we're missing some of these diagnoses because the children have mutations in genes we know cause a disease related to what they have, um, but they're just not findable with the method we're using. And then the second is the area you were asking me about earlier that, that we specialize in, which is trying to find those new genes. And so in those cases, we may have the mutation right in front of us, but not know it because we just ha- don't know enough about the impact of that genetic change on the protein. Maybe it's a very subtle change of the sense change of one amino acid for another. Um, or maybe it's a change in a gene that we haven't really understood very well yet.
2: Yeah, I'd like to just add, um, it, depending on how you set up your whole genome sequencing, you can um, actually detect a lot more structural variation. Uh, So we're doing large inserts, so we do like 550 base pair inserts with 150 base pair paired end sequencing, and it allows us to really get at even aneuploidy. So it it really you can design software, you have to make a combination of the sequencing technology and the um, software that you build on top of it to be able to identify more so you really have to work on both of those. And then the other side of it is I do agree with the long read sequencing. But uh, we're looking to combine short read and long read sequencing very soon so that we will run two whole genome sequences on every patient they'll get short read and long read. And then that helps with the deficiencies of both long reads are not as good at um, calling single nucleotide variants but they're very good for structural variants and short tandem repeats and short read sequencing is excellent at calling. uh, uh, single nucleotide variants and small insertion deletions so when you combine the two of them together, you can overcome the limitations. And then I would just add on the other side of it is the annotation piece of it. What does this variant mean? So we we can get really good at identifying variants, but not very good at understanding what they mean. And a lot of the, the, um, the, the data that's out there that would support identifying what the variant means is behind a paywall.
0: Um, and can you, um, sorry, Christine, could you just explain the difference between long read and short read sequencing? You sort of said um, what they're very good at, but what are the actual kind of physical differences between the two?
2: So, so, for a long read, it's 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 sort of like threading a needle. You know, you're you're trying you're you have to isolate the DNA in a way that you don't fragment it too much. You want really large pieces of DNA, so there's a there's an issue with collection of the sample and um, doing your DNA extraction so that you can um, be able to look at very long fragments. And the reason why that's important for short tandem repeats is because in short read sequencing, we fragment it. And then um, some of the the repetitive regions expand so big that that the sequence that we're reading is entirely repetitive sequence. And since that repeat, depending on what it is, is seen multiple places in the genome, when we try to map that to, does it go here, does it go here, does it go here? We don't know. It it could go to any number of places that have repetitive sequence. So what you really need is sequence on either side of the repetitive uh, sequence that anchors it to a particular gene in the genome. And then uh, long reads, you get that. more importantly there as well, is you when you can read it, we can not only tell you how many repeats are expanded, but we can tell you what type of repeats they are. And this is really important because if they're interrupting sequence, it will give you some indication of whether there's going to be further expansion. So when we're talking about um, uh, you know, DM1 and DM2, and in a mother being a carrier, um, it's really going to be important to know if there's any intervening sequence that might help stabilize that expansion and not have it expand um, into congenital range for the, for the children.
0: So we focused a lot here um, on obviously the diagnosis, and it's a key part. Um, but once you get that diagnosis, it's clearly a huge moment for the patient. Um, you get that that sort of I imagine it provides a, a sense of reassurance to an extent. Um, but that that feeling must be pretty quickly replaced by thoughts of of whether or not the condition can be managed, what you can do next. Um, and and David, you you touched on it earlier that um, you can now spend a relatively short amount of time um, getting the diagnosis, but then it's figuring out how the uh, the therapeutics are then applied afterwards, how you can treat and manage the di- the, the disease. Um, Alan, a lot of your work also goes into understanding these conditions, and then also and the development of targeted therapeutics. Can you tell us a little bit more about that work?
1: Um, Let me just quickly relate a story about a family that we know very well um, that kind of exemplifies this diagnostic odyssey and the impact that it has on them. Um, And this is a family who had a boy with a muscle disease that um, had been going through um, classic diagnostic odyssey for about 10 years. And a few years ago, we identified a mutation in a gene uh, called Titan or TTN. Titan um, is a very large muscle protein. And uh, when you've got um, two mutations or mutations on both alleles, you can have a recessive muscle disease, but you can also have a mutation on just one allele and it causes, can cause adult onset cardiomyopathy. Um, and this family, uh, which is medically very savvy, in fact, one of the parents was a physician. Um, when they discovered, when they heard this result, uh, the first thing they did was bake a cake for their child with the, with the word TTN on it. So they had a big celebration because for them, all of a sudden they had a community. They had a group of other people to to talk to, uh, shared common experiences, and some hopes about therapy development, which I'll get to in just a minute. Uh, But there was one other implication for that family, and that is the fact that this child who had two mutations, one from each parent, um, also um, that led to the realization that the parents were potentially at risk. And in fact, on one of the parent's sides, um, a, a grandparent and some grand aunts and uncles had developed adult onset cardiomyopathy. Um, and some of these individuals are now being followed by cardiologists and are receiving care to help mitigate that risk. So just the diagnosis alone can have a tremendous impact. Now, in terms of what do you do and to use that information um, to go to the next step, in that particular case, it's a very difficult gene, but for example, we have zebrafish, that carry a mutation in that same Titan gene that we're using to screen molecule, a small molecule libraries to try and identify drugs that might counteract the deficiency of that. So that's one type of approach. Um, David touched on something a few minutes ago. He mentioned Milicin. Milicin is the name of a drug given to an oligonucleotide designed to treat a very unique mutation found in one girl whose name was Mila. Uh, and as it turned out, Mila had a um, mutation that altered, that caused um, improper splicing. And through this discovery of her unique mutation, known only in her as far as we know in the world, um, uh, an investigator at our hospital, Tim Yu, neurologist here, was able to design oligonucleotides to block the pathogenic spike uh, splicing um, and then uh, treat um, Mila with this. And for about a year and a half, this significantly reduced the frequency of her uh, seizures, which were extremely debilitating at the time. She had a form of Batten disease, a severe childhood neurodegenerative disease. And sadly, she did eventually die of her disease, um, but the use of that drug um, likely significantly delayed um, her eventual death and uh, improved the quality of her life through reducing the frequency and severity of her seizures for quite some time. So this is kind of now the paradigm of what people are calling personalized medicine, that if you can identify that mutation, you can uh, develop a reagent very specifically uh, to uh, treat it in some cases. And so there's really tremendous excitement and potential for this for the future.
0: Uh, And in those those animal models that you use, the zebrafish, um, is there a role that sort of um, that whole genome sequencing can play in developing those models or making them more accurate?
1: Um, well, in the case of um, the Titan mutation, in fact, uh, we did uh, need to use whole genome sequencing to identify the mutation, because although we believed these fish had a defect based on genetic mapping and uh, Western blot studies showing that the protein was abnormal, um, we couldn't the gene is so enormous we couldn't identify it. We had to resort to whole genome sequencing. Um, but uh, I mean, whole genome sequencing is a tool. It's an extremely powerful one. It can be used a lot of different ways. And in the case of developing animal models, um, it can be used, for example, to confirm targeted mutations that you might create using, for example, CRISPR-Cas9 mediated gene editing. So um, you, not, if you use CRISPR methods to create a specific mutation in an animal's gene to create that animal model, you also wanna make sure there haven't been off-target effects, for example, that some untoward change somewhere else in the genome. And so whole genome sequencing can be very useful there.
0: Fantastic. Um, and, and Tucker, do, do you have any um, sort of additional things to add about the technological developments that, that are available now to um, to researchers like like Alan and, and then also to um, clinicians like uh, like David?
4: We have these amazing stories of how genetic testing based on whole genome sequencing has has literally saved lives uh, and saved families. Um, And we have cases uh, or use cases like uh, rabies uh, hospital there were. um, You know, we have these centralized efforts to do the sequencing on the spot, so we can turn the results around really quickly. Uh, But ultimately, I think that the challenge from a technology standpoint is is access so. So we have these centralized options, but what what, what if we need a decentralized option, right, to, for access to these kinds of technologies to access whole genome sequencing? Um, and, and that's what SOMAGEM really focuses on is, is this idea of access to clinical grade uh, data generation through whole genome sequencing, but, and, and we know many technology companies are working on uh, the various sequencing technologies that we've been referred to here in terms of short read system, long read systems, all sorts of different flavors many groups and companies are working on that but ultimately if we're talking about access to these technologies we're really talking about cost um and turnaround time even you know if you're if you're thinking about a a genetic test a diagnostic test it has to be accessible which means the, the price point needs to be low enough that more people can take it uh take these tests and also have those results come around quickly so we can uh, the clinicians can take those uh, interventions as as needed. And outside of just focusing on the the sequencing technology, when we think about decentralized access to this kind of testing, is if somebody's remote, you know, in the middle of America and they don't have access to specialists, uh, you know, Christine talked about this. You know, how how do how do they get access to to a specialist or a genetic counselor? Uh, and I'm seeing, uh, you know, we're seeing a lot of exciting development. I think particularly during this pandemic. Uh, with uh, access through telehealth type platforms, right? Um, where these companies and groups are making access to specialists and genetic counselors through your computer, basically. Uh, and so those types of developments will make these kinds of tests even more accessible, no matter where you are in this country or the world for that matter.
0: I suppose, whilst equally it's, it's very important to, to aggregate patients and to get those for that understanding of, of diseases and developments, Really, we want to get to a place where um, these kind of actions that are that are happening currently in these these quite centralized locations are able to happen a sort of a, in, throughout clinics around um, around the US and around the world. Um, so, so David, in terms of um, the care of patients at um, at the Rady Children's Hospital, um, have you seen? As as sort of um, whole genome sequencing has become more more accessible, cheaper, quicker, faster, have you seen an improvement in the options for care available for patients and and the options of ultimately for for therapy?
3: Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I think I, I can you know give you a few, few ideas and a few stories of, of, of what we've been up to. So Genome Institute in San Diego does sequencing now for 68 children's hospitals across the US um, and several in other countries as well. Um, as Take alluded to, one of the challenges we have is that actually you know, we can turn a genome around and have a diagnosis in 14 hours. But if it takes two days for the sample to get to us from elsewhere in the world, that's really a problem. But even ignoring those problems, the biggest challenge we have is the issue of the delay in the test being sent. Um, And so, you know, when we looked at this 10 years ago, where we were at that point able to do a a rapid exome in four days, what we demonstrated was that there was typically a 40 day lead time between the kid, people being aware that the kid wasn't right, and the four day exome being ordered. And it's like, well, actually, you could have done a three day exome, sorry, three week exome, and you still would have had an answer faster. Um, And so, there are a series of reasons why there's this big delay. Part of it is physician comfort with ordering a test um, and with getting consent and returning results. Um, and then another big part of this is the issue of the way your hospital budgets work. Um, and so in the US, most children that are admitted are on a system where the hospital is paid based on what's called a diagnosis related group or a DRG. And so essentially, the hospital gets paid the same amount whether the child has a genome or doesn't have a genome. Um, and actually, in making the child better perversely the hospital gets paid less because we get the kid out of the hospital sooner with less severe illness and so there is a financial disincentive for hospitals to actually do the testing on in two levels Um, i will say that very fortunately we work with a lot of hospitals that put what the patient needs above their financial bottom line but it's a stretch and a challenge that they have to justify all the time so why is this relevant to patient outcomes well what we see is that the You know, for many disorders, infantile seizure disorders, for example, um, many of the children, if there is a specific treatment, if you delay a week before the kid gets on the right treatment, then it's too late. Recognizing that a child is that outlier that needs this extra technology can take a week. Um, And so what we have to move towards is this place where every child that is admitted who is critically ill gets a genome because insurance agrees that it's worth doing, um, and it's paid for, and the hospital has a system for getting reimbursed. And so what we've done over the last five years is a series of studies that have looked at addressing the physician challenges to implementing it, and getting to the point that essentially physicians are actually very comfortable now with ordering this testing at the 60 hospitals we work with, although there are still challenges. Um, And they're comfortable returning results when we provide a system of uh, precision medicine which includes them having the up-to-date data on what the treatments are. When we deployed that system at our local hospital, we published a series of papers that demonstrated improved long-term outcomes and clinical benefit. Um, more recently, um, we were recipient of a grant from the state of California to scale that up to five children's hospitals in California, and that was called Project Baby Bear. Um, that um, paper has literally just been accepted yesterday um, to, to go into the details of the data on that. Um, but the important point is that we were able to show to the state of California that it would save them money by providing rapid whole genome sequencing as a first-line test when the child is admitted to the ICU, essentially versus waiting until a physician thought that this was the right thing to do. We have a similar project that's going on in Michigan called Project Baby Deer. But again, that that project has been running now for less than a year with less than 100 kids in There's a whole bunch of Project Baby somethings we've already saved two kids' lives. And by the way, we've saved some money as well. And so I, I think, you know, we are at this point where the, the evidence is essentially overwhelming in this neonatal intensive care con- context that, that we should be doing this. Um, more recently, we actually piloted in the adult cardiac intensive care unit and have seen similar results that actually we can provide life-saving interventions for previously unsuspected genetic disorders in adults that are just admitted to a cardiac intensive care unit in their 40s, 50s, 60s. And so yes, this is going to change the care of medicine very rapidly, not just in pediatrics, but beyond.
0: So that concludes part one of this episode. In the next episode we discuss some of the key ethical issues surrounding whole genome sequencing including responsible handling of genomic data, the genomic data gap and the role and responsibility of competitive industry in this field. Keep an eye out for what becomes a heated debate on where to draw the line with whole genome sequencing and unwanted information. If you've been interested by the topics discussed in this episode you may want to check out our In Focus on Whole Genome Sequencing for Precision Medicine, sponsored by Somagen, over on www.biotechniques.com. Thank you for listening, stay safe, and goodbye.